Take up the white man's burden. Send forth the best ye breed. Go send your sons to exile, to serve your captives' need, to wait in heavy harness on fluttered falcon wild, your new-caught sullen peoples, half devil and half child. Take up the white man's burden, in patience to abide, to veil the threat of terror and check the show of pride. By open speech and simple, and hundred times made plain, to seek another's profit and work another's gain. Take up the white man's burden and reap his old reward. The blame of those ye better, the hate of those ye guard. The cry of hosts ye humor, ah, slowly to the light. Why brought ye us from bondage, our loved Egyptian night? Take up the white man's burden. Have done with childish days, the lightly proffered laurel, the easy ungrudged praise, comes now to search your manhood, through all the thankless years, cold-edged with dear-bought wisdom, the judgment of your peers. This poem was published in February 1899 by British poet and author Rudyard Kipling, titled The White Man's Burden. The United States and the Philippine Islands, which, no, just no, yeah, no. Everything about this poem is just no. Sup, guys, I'm back. I'd never abandon you, so I'm currently proposing the idea of researching Asian American history to my AAPI group. I sort of gathered a long list of research ideas, and the teacher running the group had me do a prototype project on one of these ideas. There were two ideas on my list that I didn't know as much about, the Hawaiian Senate and American colonization of the Philippines, and one of them was a heck of a lot more interesting than the other. No offense, Hawaii. So here's the episode. After a long buildup of tension between Spain and America, America finally declared war on Spain on April 25, 1898. Teddy Roosevelt, who at the time was President William McKinley's Assistant Secretary of the Navy, was thrilled with showing off the might of America's new and improved all-steel navy, plus getting his hands on that oh-so-tasty expansionism in the oh-so-valuable Pacific. He wired Commodore Dewey of the Asiatic Squadron, who was then in Hong Kong, about the news. Carry a big stick. Am I right? Roosevelt! So Dewey, aboard his flagship Olympia plus six more ships, sailed into Manila Bay, almost undetected. When he spotted the Spanish ships under the command of General Patricio Montoya, he ordered his men to fire when ready, thus beginning the battle at 5.41 in the morning. It would rage on until 12.30 in the afternoon, when the Spanish surrendered. Though the Spanish had more ships, the American weaponry was superior. So while Spain lost 167 men and had 214 others wounded, the Americans had less than 10 casualties. However, the fighting on land took a bit longer, as it would take U.S. ground troops three months to arrive. By June of 1898, General Emilio Alginando and co. had captured the island of Luzon and besieged Manila. On June 12th, the Philippine Republic was created with Aguinaldo as president. The Spanish in the city hoped for reinforcements, but those never came. U.S. troops and Philippine rebels eventually took Manila on August 13th after a bloodless battle. The Spanish governor of the city, 
Furman Wadena's secretly arranged surrender after a mock show of resistance to try to keep up his reputation. The Americans controlled the city while the Filipino insurgents controlled the rest of the country. These events, plus some Cuba action, eventually paved way for the controversial Treaty of Paris, signed on December 10, 1898, where it called for U.S. control of the Philippines in return for $20 million paid to Spain. Later, on December 21st, President McKinley issued the Benevolent Assimilation Proclamation, which, as happy-slappy as it sounds, went something like this. Oh, we're not here to take over your island. Oh, no. We're here to, um, make sure your human rights are protected. Yeah, totally. So, basically, sugar-coated colonialism. On January 20th, 1899, President McKinley appointed the first Philippine Commission, the Sherman Commission, a five-person group headed by Dr. Jacob Sherman, president of Cornell University. Hey, my great-great-grandpa on my mom's side went there. Do I get legacy status for mentioning that in an episode? No. In a report issued the following year, the group came to the conclusion that the Filipinos desired independence, no shit, Sherlock. They were literally, spoiler alert, fighting the U.S. for freedom, but were not ready for independence. They recommended to establish a civilian government as soon as possible. <clears throat> Philippine Republic! Well, to be fair, Aguinaldo was, well, a dictator. They also called for, quote, establishment of a bicameral legislature, autonomous governments on the provincial and municipal levels, and a system of free public elementary schools, end quote. However, the Americans touched little on land reforms, leaving a few wealthy landlords in control of rural areas where most Filipinos lived. Classic America. Ever since the Philippines declared independence, Congress and the American civilian population became divided between annexationists and anti-imperialists. The anti-imperialists formed the American Anti-Imperialist League on June 15th, three days after the Philippines declared independence. This group was led by William Jennings Bryan. The anti-imperialists believed that it was wrong for the U.S. to take control of such a large population of people who were of a different race and culture. Along with that, annexing the Philippines violated the ideals of the Declaration of Independence, which proclaimed that all people deserved life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Also, by annexing the Philippines, the U.S. would become embroiled in Asian geopolitics. I don't know about you, but Asian geopolitics are my kind of chaotic mess. <laughs> says the Chinese-American child who would probably get licked if she went anywhere near that thing. However, on February 6th, 1899, the entirety of the Treaty of Paris was ratified 57 to 27, just one vote more than the two-thirds majority needed for ratification in the Senate. This enraged the Filipinos, who saw the Americans as just a new colonial overlord and uwu material to satisfy some 14-year-old shippers, quote-unquote, needs. Ah, the 2020 country humans fandom. Rest in peace, dying fandom. Actually, no. So, some Muslim sultanates, still reasonably salty about the whole Catholic Spain ordeal, started fussing up trouble. 
These guys were the Moros of Mindanao Island, who fought against assimilation, especially against the U.S. attempting to remove some of their feudal practices, like slave trading. But it's my heritage! But more pressing was the matter of the Catholic rebel nationalist movement. Things came to blows between the U.S. and the Filipinos on February 4, 1899, when shooting erupted on the outskirts of Manila. By morning, the Filipinos were defeated, though they fought bravely to near recklessness. At the same time, Aguinaldo declared war on the U.S. and appointed Commander Antonio Luna in charge of forces and upgraded him to general. Soon after, American reinforcements were sent to the Philippines. During this first period of the war between February and November, the Filipinos experienced many losses. Because they were outgunned, outmanned, and outtrained, I think I just made a new word, by the U.S., fighting a conventional war just wasn't going to happen. The Filipinos also lacked outside support and faced geographic difficulties. Along with that, internal jealousies between Aguinaldo and Luna incapacitated the military still more. Aguinaldo would eventually call his guards to assassinate Luna, stabbing Luna and Colonel Ramon, the general's aide, who had rushed to his rescue. Later, on March 31st, the U.S. captured the rebel capital of Malolos. That same month, President McKinley convened the Second Philippine Commission and appointed William Howard Taft as the chairman. On April 7th, McKinley instructed Taft to, quote, bear in mind that the government which they are establishing is designed not for our satisfaction or for the expression of our theoretical views, but for the happiness, peace, and prosperity of the people of the Philippine Islands, quote, which implied independence to folks in the future. But Taft wasn't about that stuff. He wanted a long-term relationship, not some one-night stand where the U.S. would just mess around with nation-building before pulling out. Ay, that sounds like a certain 2021 world event. Taft created the Policy of Attraction, which was created to win over Filipino elites and others who disliked Aguinaldo's plan for the Philippines. This plan included building schools, Filipino involvement in the Philippine government, and lower U.S. trade barriers. However, many U.S. politicians weren't too keen on the idea of commitment. Back to the shooty-fighty stuff. The Filipino government fled northward, and in November decided to change strategies, adopting guerrilla tactics. Insurrections continued throughout Luzon, where the U.S. was assisted by indigenous Macabebe scouts, who were previously loyal to Spain. When Brigadier General Frederick Funston learned of Aguinaldo's location from a captured messenger, Funston decided to head into the mountains of northern Luzon and pulled a reverse Princess Leia rescue, where he and his officers pretended to be captured American soldiers led by the Maccababies disguised as rebels. When Aguinaldo welcomed what he believed to be reinforcements, they surprised him with the demand for a surrender. At the arrival of Funston, Aguinaldo stated, Is this not some joke? before being captured on March 23, 1901, and led back to Manila. Aguinaldo then pledged allegiance to the U U.S. and asked for the war to be over. But the guerrilla campaigns continued, just less centralized than before. The last major event before the end of the war on July 4, 1902, would be the surrender of Filipino General Miguel Malvar in Samar on April 16, 1902, 
leaving the rest of the gorillas to be only a small nuisance. And here's a quote from Botanica about the remainder of the fighting because it's late at night and I'm too tired to, well, paraphrase it. Quote, about a thousand gorillas under Simone Ola were not defeated until late 1903, and in Batangas province, south of Manila, troops commanded by Marcario Skake resisted capture until as late as 1906. The last organized resistance to U.S. power took place on Samar from 1904 to 1906. There, the rebels' tactic of burning pacified villages contributed to their own defeat. Although an unconnected insurgency campaign by Moro bands on the Mindano continued sporadically until 1913, the United States had gained undisputed control of the Philippines, and it retained possession of the islands until 1946. End quote. Oh, and those Moro guys? They did some of the fiercest fighting. Fighting between them and the Americans took place in 1901 and later came back in spring of 1903. Some of their most notable battles were the Battle of Bayong at Lanao Lake, where the Moros attacked the Americans in early May of 1902, and the battle in the crater of the extinct volcano Dajo on Jolo Island in March of 1906. Their 600 Moro soldiers would be killed by General Leonard Wood's troops, but the Moros' fight for independence would sort of continue to the present day. You ever heard of the Moro Islamic Liberation Front, huh? Yeah, I huh, sort of first found out about them through a certain meme. <clears throat> Anyways, tracking back to the end of the war, ultimately more than 4,200 American soldiers and 20,000 Filipino soldiers would wind up dead. So yeah, the Philippines came under American control. In 1907, the Philippines convened its first elected assembly. Then came the Jones Act of 1916, when after realizing the Philippines wasn't going to be that big trading hub the U.S. desired, was too difficult to manage, unlike tiny Guam and Puerto Rico, and was just a money drain, the U.S. promised the Philippines eventual independence. The Philippines eventually gained autonomy under the Tidings-McDuffie Act, which President Roosevelt persuaded Congress to pass in 1934 as an economic measure. This act provided for the gradual removal of U.S. military presence as well as an actual due date for independence. After that whole Japan fiasco, the Philippines gained independence on July 4, 1946, but the U.S. maintained major naval and aerial bases for the Cold War. But you may be thinking, something's not right. There must be something missing to this story. And you're right. I omitted the uglier bits of the colonization of the Philippines, like the American history teacher I am. JK, an American history teacher, would probably summarize the topic in a few sentences before moving on to one of the more overrated events. Yeah, so here's part two of this episode, the crimes against the Philippine civilians. You know that Ruyard, I will never look at the Jungle Book the same way again, Kipling poem I read at the beginning of the episode? That was sort of the way Filipinos were seen during that time period, half devil and half child. Like the savage, small brain Native Americans the Americans had taken land from before. In fact, during the war, politicians like Indiana Senator Alfred Beveridge referred to the Filipinos as a barbarous race, insisting that, quote, the Philippines 
are ours forever. We will not repudiate our duty in the archipelago. We will not abandon our duty in the Orient. We will not renounce our part in the mission of our race, trustee under God of the civilization of the world. End quote. Imperialists believed it was their duty to civilize the Filipinos and educate them. After the war, hordes of white school teachers, mainly women, came to the Philippines in an attempt to civilize the future generations. And as African Americans, after a long, brutal reconstruction period filled with racism, were gaining a somewhat sort of respect-ish, the American public began to turn their ire towards the hot new current event in town. In fact, American soldiers even called Filipinos N-words along with a slew of other racial slurs like monkey men and goo-goos, a reference to the Tagalog word gago, meaning idiot. As for the war itself, because the Americans didn't see the Filipinos the same way as whites, they didn't hold to the conventional ways of warfare. In order to counter the rebels, the U.S. would torture suspected guerrillas for information, kill prisoners, burn villages, and reconcentrate civilians. However, to be fair, it must be noted that guerrillas also tortured captured soldiers and terrorized civilians who conspired with the Americans. Some American military leaders believed that Thanos was right. Quote, it may be necessary to kill half of the Filipinos so that the rest could live in a more civilized society. End quote. With the most prevalent example being that of Brigadier General Jacob F. Smith, who responded to a massacre on U.S. troops by a campaign of burning and killing indiscriminately. He took no prisoners. Anyone over 10 was fair game, as those folks were too heavily influenced by Philippine culture to become American. Which, one, that's not how the American melting pot works, and two, bruh, what the hell, man? And as for burning villages, once a village is turned to ash, where do the people go? Ah uh, yes, that calls for a simple solution. Why don't we shove them into concentration camps where they get shot if they try to cross the deadline? Problem solved. However, the most significant method of murder was torture, and the most significant measure of torture was the water cure. Basically, the American soldiers would force a Filipino prisoner to ingest a lot of water until their stomach got bulged. Then, the American soldiers would forcibly expel the water by beating the prisoner, whether it be through fists or the butt of a rifle. This method would be repeated over and over again until the soldiers got the desired information. Here's a quote about the water cure from a random sergeant named Riley's Letters, November 1900. Arriving at Iqbaras at daylight, we found everything peaceful, but it shortly developed that we were really treading on a volcano. The presidente or chief, the priest, and another leading man were assembled and put on the rack of inquiry. The presidente evaded some questions and was soon bound and given the water cure. This was done by throwing him on his back beneath a tank of water and running a stream into his mouth, a man kneading his stomach meanwhile to prevent his drowning. The ordeal proved a tongue loosener, and the craft 
the old fellow soon begged for mercy and made full convention the presidente was asked for more information and had to take a second dose of water cure before he would divulge and these events were not kept a secret the american people knew about the water cure and the mass murder occurring as it was covered widely by the press in fact during the war several cases of whether the u s constitution applied to territories under u s control like the philippines and puerto rico known as the insular island cases nineteen o one to nineteen o three were shot down by the supreme court which deemed that only the u s congress could decide whether or not territories had constitutional rights beforehand i mentioned the number of combatants killed those numbers pale in comparison with the number of civilians killed two hundred thousand to one million from a combination of violence disease and famine keep in mind the population of the philippines after the spanish-american war was estimated to be about seven million people and even those death statistics are possibly underestimated as the philippines is a large group of islands about seven thousand six hundred forty total mostly covered in dense forest where it would be easy to hide something you wouldn't want the public to see thank you for tuning into this episode i hope you have a lovely rest of your day goodbye